What is up, everyone? And a big welcome to everyone to the podcast. This is the Legitimately Professional Movie Talk on the Legitical Podcast. And we are continuing with our legacy series where we focus on one director and review every single film they've directed in chronological order of release. Joining me today is film enthusiast and first time appearance on the podcast, Rick Annecy. Welcome to the show. Yeah, River, thank you. Good to be here. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? I actually didn't even ask you. Uh, I get lots of uh, different variations. Anise is cool. That's great. Anise. Or uneasy, uneasy if you want as well. That's fine. Hey, if that's a reflection on who you are, being uneasy, <laughs> then I'll leave that up maybe, to you. Maybe after this podcast. I don't know, mate. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> this is your first time doing a podcast or yeah. have you done it before? Absolutely no, first time. So I'm kind of a virgin to uh, any of these type of shows. Born <laughs> in the in the wrong the decade, I have. Uh, I'm not that great with technology, so please forgive me if I make some mistakes. But uh, I know you will. You kind of like that. <laughs> so Rick was born in World War One. <laughs> uh, I was. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I just look. Last century will be fine. Okay, so yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. And of course, my name is River Billy, and I'm the resident host of Legit Cool Podcast, where we analyze, critique, recap, and review films. We draw our conclusions by the end of the recap, and we give our personal rating. And in this legacy series, we are focusing on Christopher Nolan and the magnificent films he has created over the years. And if you haven't checked out our last two episodes on Nolan's movies, Memento and Insomnia, I recommend that you check those out first before listening to this one because I think those episodes are quite fun. And we had Nathan, who's a regular resident of Legical Podcasts. Um, he did those, he done those reviews and recasts with me. Um, I can't remember exactly what number episode that is, <laughs> but it's the previous two from this one, of course. So this brings us to his third movie in the lineup, which is Batman Begins. Technically, it's not his third, and I've explained this in the previous episode as well. Um, this is actually his fourth, because his first movie is the following, but I'm not going to get into that again. <laughs> uh, for the podcast itself, Batman Begins remains as the third in the lineup for the Christopher Nolan series. Batman Begins, which was released on June 15th, 2005. Batman Begins is the third reboot in the Warner Brothers Batman franchise, and is the first origin story of Batman. Do you remember the previous Batman movies, Rick? Absolutely. Absolutely. Tim Burton's what? versions Tim, from like the late Tim, 80s. Tim, Tim Burton, that was uh, darkness sort of personified. Brilliant. Very clever man. But if you're familiar you with You must remember work going to the cinema for that, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. What? I, there was no down, <laughs> downloads back then. I mean, I, yeah. I, I don't think we even introduced like DVDs via, you know, mail at that stage, you know. <laughs> ring it up True. and then it, it arrives three days later that wasn't such a thing so you definitely movies yeah yeah and so we had you know tim burton movies and i think for me it was also the first time i ever seen batman on screen um i didn't see the uh adam west batman tv series or even the adam west movie which is like crazy oh, yeah. long like i don't know if you remember the the 1960s batman film it was like three hours or something long and it had every Man. single villain of Batman. Well, I went to the cinema to see that as well. It was a double feature, right? No and way. that was, yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm still in awe of what he could pull out of his bat belt. Amazing. Just reach behind 
behind him, underneath the cape, out came something else. Even like bat shark repellent. Astounding. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, Maybe you, we need to bring you, that into the new Batmans. <laughs> Maybe maybe we'll see. You know what happens with this new variety when we uh, we get our first taste of. And you're going to hate me for this, but we're not getting Batman in the next movie. We're getting Dracula. All right, I'm going to leave that there. We're going to save that for another moment. We're getting and Dracula. Think about this, okay? And you'll know what I mean when you see the movie. And I think that this is what there was an intent with this the, this particular actor who's going to play the new Batman. And when you see his entire Batman um, outfit, yeah, high collar, he, we're getting a vampire, um, <laughs> which I think is great. I'll leave that there. So you're referring to Robin Patterson's, Robert Patterson's new Batman? Oh, yeah. I didn't want to say his name. I didn't want to say his name too early. <laughs> That's not because he was a vampire previously, right? Duh, that's what I'm referring to. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you see it, it's I like, because I, I kept looking in the trailers that it's like, he's got a collar on his cape. It's like, he looks like Dracula. I thought, no, no. Yeah. He's upgraded anyway, his like teen vampire character to Dracula now. We're revisiting that. So let's see how this works out. <laughs> anyway. anyway, anyway. So yes, this is the third reboot of the Warner Brothers Batman franchise and the first origin story, which is also a little bit of a surprise because... Um, if you think about all the other previous Batman films, we haven't had an origin story the same way that Nolan is presenting in Batman Begins. So pretty exciting. And I didn't actually know this before I went and saw the film back in 2005. But nonetheless, in Nolan's interview with Warner Brothers president of production, Greg Silverman, it, apparently it only took him 15 minutes to win them over. Like, wow. uh, So, quote, Chris came in and said, look, this is what I want to do in the movie, and this is what I want to do with the with it visually. This is where I think the character needs to go. I think it's going to be different than any superhero movie anybody's seen before. And what I really want to do is take that genre and embrace it as a real film genre, unquote. So that was from uh, former president of Warner Brothers back then. His name was Jeff Rob Robinov. Um, he's obviously not the Warner Brothers prison anymore, but, you know, apparently it just took him about 10, 15 minutes to win over the Warner Brothers, uh, you know, highbrow guys. So kind of not surprised about that. You know, when you look at the only previous films that Chris and Nolan had done up until this point is Memento being the most popular one, which really put him on the map for all those powerful producers and execs at, you know, big places like Warner Brothers or even Miramax or whatever. But, you know, there was previous film, The Following, it did gain a little bit of traction. And I explained this in the previous podcast as well. And that traction really came down to being popular in film festivals. So um, I'm not surprised, but also given the time period and what he'd only accomplished, which was Memento and Insomnia, I am kind of surprised that Warner Brothers was like, yeah, let's give this guy... 200 and or oh, was 150 million dollars to make a batman movie yeah look they took a deep breath with that and i i'm so so you know i'm i appreciate the fact that it took 15 minutes to win over the executives mm. and they thought yeah let's give the new guy a go but it, you know it kind of took an hour to win me over to even wow. even see batman man 50 i think i timed it um last time when i saw the movie again Close to 55 minutes before, oh, all right, that's what I'm here for. It's Batman. It's Batman, Okay, yeah. 
But it's seriously an hour. That You're was, right. For an origin, it was the longest time that I had to sort of like sit there and think, okay, bottom of the popcorn. And here we are. Thanks very much, Christian. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> wow. It'll be interesting to hear whether that's a positive or a negative thing for you. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so with a budget of $150 million, Batman Begins went on to gross a successful $206.9 million at the box office. The movie's reception with critics and fans was overwhelmingly positive with the studio immediately greenlit the sequel, The Dark Knight which later came out in 2008. So with a runtime of two hours and 20 minutes and a Rotten Tomatoes score of 84%, that's the critic side, and a 94% audience rating, Batman Begins is a film about a young Bruce Wayne, played by Christian Bale, travels to the Far East where he's trained in the martial arts by Henry Ducard, played by Liam Neeson, a member of the mysterious League of Shadows. When Ducard reveals the League's true purpose, the complete destruction of Gotham, Gotham City, Wayne returns to Gotham with an intent on cleaning up the city without restoring to resorting to murder. With the help of Alfred, played by Michael Caine, his loyal butler, and Lucius Fox, played by Morgan Freeman, a tech expert at Wayne Enterprises, Batman is born. So with a stacked cast, Batman Begins stars Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, Killian Murphy, Tom Wilkinson, Rucker Hauer, Hur, <laughs> I never know how to pronounce his last name, <laughs> Ken Hauer. Watanabe, Hauer, okay, okay, Ken Watanabe, Mark Boone Jr., Linus Roach, Morgan Freeman, and Gus Lewis, oh, sorry, Sarah Stewart. This is Batman Begins 2005. Now, I want you to give me your first impressions. Keep it nice and short and sharp because we're going to get into the whole recap after this um, and where we're going to explore the entire film. Um, so what are your first impressions coming out of this? Um, maybe you can jump back to when you first watched it and also when you know, obviously you watched it a couple of days ago. Uh, what are your first sure, impressions? Sure. Look, um, the movie was uh, especially when I, look, I intentionally went to see it on a big screen and it wowed me. It was like brilliant. And I love to see like a reimagining of uh, any director's vision of, of the future. Now, I've seen it many times after, okay? And, How many times? You know, as you, uh, oh, probably five, I think. Over the years, it's an easy one. You know, if it's on TV, it's gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. If, if I'm on a plane flying somewhere and it's there, I'm going to watch it again. Um, but then I start to break it down a little bit, and this is probably where I'm at right now with this. Um, yeah, and I, I know that some parts you might disagree with me river but um you know <laughs> we'll see what you think okay but otherwise look br brilliant vision great reimagining okay but for me this is not the batman that i wanted okay I'll, all right let's move on okay 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 i was gonna i was gonna ask you a follow-up question like what is the batman that you wanted but maybe you can elaborate more either through the recap or in the conclusion so you yeah. know my first impressions of this film is so I want to go back to 2005 when I first watched this movie. Um, the moment Warner Brothers, or I shouldn't say Warner Brothers, but the moment Christopher Nolan presents the bat logo with the tens of thousands of bats flying across the screen, and then you see yes. the bat logo um, become realized through the thousands of bats going across the screen. 
that with the sepia type tone, I was like, holy, I, I got chills. And I, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I got chills when that logo came up and I, I immediately knew that this guy knows exactly what he's going to do with this character. Um, just that local presentation. But I think this is also a mark of Christopher Nolan is that he always has these stunning introductions of the film without saying that this is the film. You think about, Mm. um, you know, the dark Knight, which we're obviously going to be reviewing later in the week. Um, The way he presents the Batman logo in there. I don't know if you remember that it's, it's like a, it's an explosion. It's a fire explosion. That's the color blue. And then, slowly the logo appears and i'm like man this guy is a visual genius so immediately i thought this movie was going to be fantastic and so i actually can't remember in detail my whole experience of batman begins but by the end of it in 2005 i was blown away by how good it was which is kind of weird because i don't recall my kind of feeling and reaction during the film at the time right but then when i go to revisit it again and i'm kind of like you as well i've seen it multiple times since 2005 in fact i think i watch it like once every year or something like that but then watching it again this time around for the review and recap i find this story to be one of the most inspiring bruce wayne stories that i've ever seen but also granted we've never seen a bruce wayne story like this before um but i felt inspired i felt connected to the bruce wayne character that i've never had previously because i've also got batman comics too and there isn't really an elaborate or emotional arc for bruce wayne in any of the comics so this story made me feel something and it made me connect Mm -hmm. with bruce wayne on a level that i never connected with before um as far as the batman concept or the batman arc you should say it's um yeah there's no real Batman arc here, but, but this is kind of going back to the reason why it's called Batman Begins because it's it's it's, it's almost like a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, a bait and switch, you know? You go into this movie thinking, oh, yeah, cool, this is going to be a Batman origin story. But really, by the end of it, it's not really a Batman origin story. It's more a Bruce Wayne becoming Batman origin story, and hence why it's called Batman Begins. Very much so. That's mm. exactly what it was. Um, look, when I when I if I look at like think about a Christopher Nolan movie, I look at I think about sameness, mm. and I can't help move away from that sort of thinking because his movies visually are um, are really brilliant. Like everything is framed perfectly, and I said this to you before. I would have liked to have seen or heard more atmospherics, especially the opportunity in the Batcave or what was to become the Batcave. I would have liked some more depth and texture at that moment. Mm. The opening credit was incredible. Uh, I give you that. But more atmospherics would have really, really embedded something like for me to move. Mm. Um, Interesting uh, concept of Batman learning everything and honing your skills from basically the dark side and the dark aspect of of, uh, humanity. And that was the League of Shadows. Everything he learned basically came from there mm, yeah which is such a great part to put in his story because mm. you know i'm pretty sure a lot of comic writers for batman are probably kind of kicking themselves going man why didn't we come up with that kind of origin story because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it, it fits yeah. in well but it, but we should probably say that it fits in well with the universe or the world building that chris Nolan does with this character sure mm. 
Sure. But that was the probably the only element of darkness uh, and the dark side of like his duality that I actually sort of saw. I don't think um, Christopher Nolan conveyed that as well as what he could do because when he wanted to get dark and serious, he just filmed at nighttime. <laughs> and that was kind of it. That was the visual. So we were yeah, kind of yeah. thinking, okay, well, someone turned out the lights. Yeah. Well, right, it's dark. You know, we're teetering on sort of the recap bar, so why don't we just get into this recap? And it's the, if okay. this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, then this recap section is basically a detailed and analytical run-through of the entire film. We go through the three-act structure, which is Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, and then there's also a epilogue and a conclusion by the end of it. So I'm going to use this really cool transition here to get us into the recap. That's actually a very Christopher Nolan transition, isn't it? Let's play that again. Isn't it? That was great. <laughs> it actually does sound like maybe they did get a get a soundbite from um, Batman Begins or something like that. That's just before a car flips over or something, right? It's it's kind of before the Batman theme comes in. You know, there's like the okay. you know, and then and then the theme yeah. sort of kicks in. <laughs> so let's jump straight into this. So in the beginning okay. of this film, we we see that. Um, Batman, well not Batman, I should say, but Bruce Wayne, he is uh, thrown into a prison, right? Um, he associates with criminals uh, in this prison called the Bhutanese prison. I don't know if you picked up the name of the prison, but um, yeah, it's it's in Bhutan. I don't know if you know where Bhutan right. is, but I'm also not mm-hmm. entirely aware of where Bhutan is, but I know it's somewhere in that kind of uh nepal 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 kind of himalayas like region yeah yeah somewhere there um so he's he's in the bhutanese uh, prison by police for theft ironically of wayne enterprise property which we don't actually learn until later that he was in prison because of that um after a prison brawl an enigmatic Man who identifies himself as Henry Ducard invites Bruce to join an elite vigilante group, the League of Shadows, under the leadership of Raz Al Ghul. Bruce is freed the next day and travels to the top of the Tibetan mountain to begin his combat training with the League. In his training, Bruce overcomes his fear of bats while under the hallucinogenic influence of a mountainside blue flower. So, also in this section, I should probably point out that. Um, he, Nolan does the kind of I call it the Nolanisms, where as much as he's his intention is to tell a linear story, he doesn't tell it in a linear way, right? And we know that from mm-hmm. films like Memento, and um, you know later on you we get films like Inception and Tenet. The, those are very lot non-linear storytelling um, crusades, you know, for Nolan himself, but, you know, for telling a story like this, it's, it's a linear storytelling, but he still has that kind of Nolanism where he goes back and forth. And so what I'm referring to in this beginning is that although we get the introduction of him being in the prison, we also jump back to his time when he's a kid, when he falls down the well. With this whole opening sequence, like what were you sort of picking up for Bruce Wayne and where we're taking this character? Okay, look, you. I think you, you're giving him a lot of credit there. I just think it was by his way to speed up a story. Mm. That That's pretty much it. That's what I got from it. Mm. He kept revisiting, and I, I kept. I then had to go back and think, well, where are we going here? Where, at what stage? Uh, it, it, I don't think it was done very, very seamlessly, but... 
Yeah, I think that is... But it did speed up the story. I, I guess not having a seamless way to it is because the back and forth between, you know, what's what's happening in present time and for Nolan to try and give some kind of exposition behind his uh, childhood, which we get a lot of a little bit later. Yeah. So, yeah, in his training, Bruce overcomes the fear of bats while under the hallucinogenic um, mountain slide blue flower. I actually want this kind of hallucinogenic. It looks pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> maybe i don't i don't know it's probably like um is this blue flower supposed to be what's that famous hallucinogenic dmt you know do you know much about dmt uh no i don't know much about it either but <laughs> but i i heard that you know dmt is from a flower um but i guess like most illegal drugs are from flowers of some sort so yeah, look, there's this particular flower, you know, enable you to step in and out, like, at your choice. Uh, not too bad. Not too bad at yeah, all. Yeah, that seems pretty cool. And it actually kind of makes like a sense. Bag. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense for, you know, ninjas to be using stuff like this, I suppose. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, however, Bruce soon realizes that he will be forced to lead the league in its fight to restore order in Gotham by creating chaos and murdering its population. When Ducard orders Bruce to execute murderer, a murderer as a final test, Bruce refuses to obey and destroys the League of Shadows or the League's headquarters, killing Raz in the process. However, Bruce rescues an unconscious Ducard from the wreckage and leaves his mentor at a nearby village. So this whole, it's not, it's almost like a, a massive opening sequence for setting up the Bruce Wayne character and the, the road or the journey that he decides to take after this whole experience. But, um, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, look, it was a very noble gesture and it, it showed that, um, you know, he was grateful. So, and uh, there was a huge degree of humility in all of that, um, which was something that wasn't repaid later. Mm, mm. But there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, we know. There is a big reason yeah. for that. And that's, that reason is kind of, it's somewhat answered in the sequel coming up. But what I love about the introduction, this particular introduction of Bruce Wayne is that it shows us that there is a more, um, yeah, maybe humbling reason why he becomes Batman because um, if if you look at the Batman character and his reasons for becoming Batman, it's really down to two things, right? One, it's the loss of his parents. Two, it's the trauma of bats. But I think what Nolan does well is emphasizing a bit more deeper as to why these bats are so uh, traumatic for him. Because because I I sort of think to myself if if I if I'm going to drop down in a well at that age and be you're not even attacked by bats but you know the bats are just doing its thing swarming around you <laughs> on one hand i'm kind of thinking i'm not going to be traumatized by a bunch of bats like what's this about like you know especially at that age he looks like he's eight years old or whatever you know he seems like he's old enough to just be okay with bats flying around him <laughs> i looked at child actor i wanted to take him to therapy because he just seemed like totally worn out by the whole was process good. after that was good Especially like, I mean, a kid traumatized by bats and what does his dad do? Takes him to an opera featuring bats. <laughs> Way to go, dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and this is... Uh, and then, yeah. 
leaving. Let's not use the front door. Let's go to the the, the slimy back yeah. alley instead. You're like, <laughs> just to freak you out anymore, kid. Well done. It's son. an odd choice for the parents to just go in the back door, but like you know, in sort of the fire. Yeah. It's a very odd choice, but I guess, I guess it, it has to fit in with the story of Bruce Wayne and, and Batman. Um, him going into yes. the alleyway and whatever. It's, it's one of those things where you're kind of like, okay, let's just apply a little bit of film logic here where they kind of had to do this to be convenient for the story that they're setting up. Um, but yeah, that, that opera, um, the name of that opera, by the way, is called Mephist- uh, Mephistopheli? Mephistopheli? I don't know. I think okay. that's Italian. Is that Italian? Uh, uh, I'm just going to get one no, of my tech I, guys here to look it up. Who doesn't exist? Yeah, that's a separate research. <laughs> um, but we we saw almost something identical in that scene when they exited into the alley mm-hmm. in the first Tim Tim Burton yeah. movie. The same element of darkness, the same um, with uh, who was going to be the Jack Nicholson character um, later. Exactly. Uh, it was yeah. If you if you paired both of those movies up, you'll see the same thing. See the same thing, and and this that's the difference also is uh, that the murderer for this film is somebody who um, plays a role in. Um, I, I guess the most obvious thing it plays a role in the trauma that continues to haunt him as he's older, especially when he's coming out of university. But um, I, I think it remains as kind of the emotional anchor for someone like Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. you know, coming back to the city because remember he it's like when he does come back to the city for the trial he also leaves again to then continue his journey with the league of shadows um which the first time i actually saw i didn't quite pick that up because we're kind of jumping back and forth a little bit and i was a little confused on the timeline um so when he came back for the trial i was like uh is is this after or before the league of shadows and of course it's actually before the league of shadows so um, I'm going to jump to that point actually really quick. As a young boy of eight years old, oh, I was actually right. He was eight years old. <laughs> Bruce Wayne falls down a well where he is caught in a swarm of bats. Bruce is rescued by his father, Thomas, but he is left with a fear of bats. When Bruce and his parents attend the opera Mephistopheli, that's like the most brutal pronunciation ever, uh, Bruce is frightened by the portrayals of a bat-like demons in the performance. He and his parents exit into the alley where they are confronted by an armed mugger, Joe Chill, who shoots and kills Bruce's parents. Chill is arrested and convicted for a double murder, but Bruce is left traumatized by the incident. The family's butler, Alfred J. Pennyworth, raises Bruce in the absence of his parents. So this is massive. And, you know, how often do we have to see the Waynes die in a film before we don't have to see them die in a, in a film. I hope they don't do the whole um, same kind of parents dying scenario in the new Batman film that's coming out on May 1st, but um, it is a very important piece to Zark. Rick. Yes. Um, the, his dad in this um, movie, he, he projected, he, he was such a placid, placid loving man and also a doctor mm. which i'd never actually realized before yeah. and and really benevolent character yeah, exactly Steve this Warm. is the part of the thomas wayne character that i love about this film and this is what's important an important piece of the puzzle for bruce wayne becoming somewhat benevolent himself as well right because um, we don't actually understand why bruce wayne has a sense of positive moral 
arc to his character. We don't actually know that in any of the previous Batman stories, but now Christopher Nolan has managed to give a reason for him to have that because there is a nurturing process that we see throughout the film between Thomas and yes. Bruce. So yeah, I mean, like the look, look, sorry, sorry, you go. Ahead. No, no, and look, very benevolent um, and humble. I mean, the whole family takes public transport on the way to the opera. Public transport that he Oops. actually kind of like donated to the <laughs> yeah, city yeah. as well. <laughs> Strangely, yeah. it's a bit of a look at me moment sort of thing. A little bit of gloating. That was kind oh, of okay. you got that, like from that. that. Okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting. no, quite quite humble. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I, I didn't see that as sort of gloating. I, I guess you could see that as gloating or or you know <laughs> a bit of signaling. You know that like, hey, look, I built something and I'm going to travel, so then everybody knows I'm... that I built this system here. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's a little off of the arc and stuff, but you know, whatever. Um, I, I think the guy that plays Thomas Wayne, um, I, for, I forget his name. What's his name here? The guy that plays Thomas Wayne. He's a great actor and I've seen him in a lot of films and I do want to see him again. I think it's Linus Roach. I could be wrong there. Or maybe Gus Lewis, one of those characters. Anyway, um, he's a brilliant actor. And I think Thomas Wayne's presence in this film is the most Thomas Wayne we've ever had in any Batman movie. Yes, you're correct. Very much so. Mm. Um, but also, I mean, we've also got um, Alfred the butler who probably does less butlering than I've ever seen any butler do <laughs> in my life as well. So well, I don't think Alfred does any butlering in any of the stories, though. <laughs> <laughs> No, he did make him a sandwich, yeah, I think. But that was, a, oh, yeah, he makes him a sandwich in um, The Dark Knight. There we go. Critical much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And he also, like, isn't he holding a tray at some point? Oh, remember he, he brings in um, the green juice. Remember after he, he does his first night of oh, vigilantism? Yeah. True, but he, look, he couldn't do any wrong because he's Michael Caine. And, you know, Michael Caine can't he do anything can't. wrong. So. That, guy's, that guy's, like, untouchable. That guy's infallible. You know, I I think that was a really good mm. anchor, having Michael Caine play. I, that was that yeah, was really good. great choice, a very good choice. Yeah. And you know, of course, we see Michael Caine make regular appearances in Christopher Nolan films. That's just uh, the Christopher Nolan way. He likes to actually just bring a lot of repeat actors. Yeah. I look, I appreciate the continuity with that too. I think this is the first time we've we've probably seen the same Batman play the character more exactly, than once. Yeah. I think. Oh. Apart from Michael Keaton, I think he did twice. But he that, did that twice, kind of, and yeah. I actually remember hearing an interview about why they didn't do a third Batman film. I can't remember the whole interview, but he did say that the third Batman film, if they had continued the franchise, it would have been along the lines of the Dark Knight version um, because Michael Keaton is a huge fan of what he legend on with the Joker character. He was blown away. And in fact, I think there's, oh, this okay. kind of, there's an underbreath there that he wants to say something about Heath Ledger being the best Batman. Oh, sorry, being the best Joker, but you know he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to backstab his career by what <laughs> unintentionally backstabbing his yeah. career by saying something like that and somewhat disrespecting um, Jack Nicholson. Sure. Um, yeah. So the the guy that plays Thomas Wayne is Linus Roach. Yeah, great, great actor. Kind of perfect for it, and he also kind of looks like Christian Bale. You know, the, the, my pet peeve sometimes, it's not a huge thing. That's why it's a pet peeve, is always trying to find what I call 
identifiable chronological actors for one character, right? Um, because right. you have yep. maybe three characters, oh, sorry, three actors portraying the one character. And so you go through this sequence of that. There's a five-year-old actor for that character. There's a, a 20-year-old actor. And then there's like a 40-year-old actor. And um, I think Linus Roach is visually kind of a good casting for Thomas Wayne because I th- he has similar features to Christian Bell. Um, maybe the kid is probably the odd one out, but the kid is a good enough actor. And I think his performance was great as a young Bruce Wayne. Yeah. He was a little bit, um, you know, howdy doody sort of like, um, howdy uh, doody. like a, a young, <laughs> explain yeah, that to the millennial. Crowd. <laughs> okay. I oh, am yeah, sorry. I'm showing my, you know, the last century thing here, really sanitized TV series, kind of like, um, my three sons, um, I remember that TV series. like a classic good kid, Brady bunch kind of, uh, child figures. I mean, these kids can't do anything wrong. I mean, they're they're almost angelic, like an absolute cherub. So I thought the kid was, um, and he did well. Very, very sort of subdued and somber. I don't think it was very how do you do? Yeah, and and <laughs> it traumatized. Like you know, you've felt felt terrible for the kid. I mean, really, that that kid could should have been rescued by child services <laughs> at some stage. Anyway. But, but, you know, also, like, most of what we get from that kid is actually pre-trauma. You know, the, the scenes that we see mm-hmm. with him and his father, it's all pre-trauma stuff. You know, when he's on the train with his father, um, going to Gotham City, and his father's explaining to him what he's doing for the city and the hopes that he has for the city. Um, it's all yes. pre-bat trauma the only post-trauma stuff that we get for from him as an eight-year-old Bruce Wayne is, I think, in the police station when he's having that chat with um, Jim Gordon. Who, by the way, yeah. I don't think they got the I don't think they got the aging correct in this uh, film for for Gary Oldman. It's like he looks exactly no. the same, like almost twenty years later. <laughs> I'm like, did did they even they didn't even attempt to age him at all? Well. I mean, going before that, was there anybody else they could have cast for Gary Oldman? Like, I think, I mean, was Gary short of money? Look, oh, was Gary the, short of money? Not being what are you trying to say? But, I mean, did he need the cash for a, for like a, for a separate project or something like that? Because I just don't think he, he – Gary is better than that. And I remember seeing Gary in a, a movie back in uh, the 80s called um, Prick Up Your Ears. And he was starring with Alfred Molina, who was Dr. Oct, okay? This is like, if you ever find it, check it out, because it was really rough mm-hmm. and raw, um, and it, it's really, it, 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 it's a great read as well as a book. So, but, yeah, I thought Gary was kind of, it could have, somebody else could have played him. Really? The commission. Uh, well, he's not commissioner really, yeah. in this movie, remember? He's just lieutenant. No, sorry, yeah. Um, Why well, yeah. didn't think he was a good good uh, lieutenant? No. I thought he was flat. Like I, I, I would have liked to have seen more um, come mm. from him. Uh, d- definitely, because I, Gary is. He, I mean, he's mm. he's brilliant. Also, as a, as a director as well. Mm. So. Yeah. Did he direct um, mm. Tinker Taylor Soldier? What's it? Yeah. Yeah. I saw Look, that. Movie. Yeah. Very, very pensive um, char- character, and also as a thinker and director and, mm. and visionary as well. So, but if you can do, prick mm. up your ears. Um, I. I believe it was originally called "Prick Up Your Ass," <laughs> but they changed they the title be able to get away for obvious that, reasons. Like internationally, yeah, yeah, back then. Anyway, um, I, I, th- I thought it was great. I thought 
yeah, I thought Gary Oldman was a great Jim Gordon. Um, but I also think he does a lot more in The Dark Knight, though. Um, and that's kind of for obvious reasons he yeah. does a lot more in The Dark Knight. Um, yeah, I didn't think he was, he was uh, all that bad. Man, thrown behind the wheel of the tumbler, and he's like quick thinking and able, <laughs> fires missiles, yeah. no problems, no trading. That convenient. was awesome. Very intuitive. Very intuitive vehicle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like. Well, let's just call it the smart vehicle, the, the Tesla version, the Tesla version. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. So when Bruce becomes a young man, he returns home to Gotham City from Princeton University um, mm-hmm. with the in- intent of killing Joe Chill, whose prison sentence is being suspended in exchange for testifying against the mob boss Carmine Falcone. Chill is assassinated by one of Falcone's henchmen, depriving Bruce of his opportunity. When Bruce tells his childhood friend Rachel Dawes about his foil plan, she expresses disgust and gives him a lecture about the difference between justice and revenge. Now, okay, so I want to talk about this scene particularly. You, you remember this, right? Like when sure. they're having this back and forth conversation just after the court case and Chill has been assassinated not really assassinated, but just shot point blank by one of the henchmen of Falcone. They have this back and forth in the car. They go down into the underground for her to prove the point, right? Oh. As uh, before, before she slaps, she slaps him twice. twice. Man, that's not even passive aggressive. Holy, that was pretty dumb. Oh, that's, anyway, she was she's straight yeah. to the point. <laughs> she is straight to the point. Um, I love this scene because this scene shows us. Um, it's giving us more layers for the justification behind Bruce Wayne slash Batman's actions that we see later in the film. Um, and, and this is, yes. this is the kind of real deep moral real world building aspect that Christopher Nolan says in an interview about wanting to bring a real world aspect to the Batman story. This is as real as it gets, you know? And so we have this yes. layer of, trauma from the bats we had this layer of trauma from the parents but we also have the nurturing process which was key to show in this film for him to make the right decisions you know as in kind of like the right moralistic decisions um when he thinks he is also making the right decisions he's also making some mistakes too and i think rachel Dawes plays such a pivotal role for bruce wayne because she's also kind of mentoring Bruce Wayne, right? It was a big reminder. She reminded him that his father would be Mm. ashamed of him. And I don't know if there was a a pause for reflection. He probably took that with him in what he was about to do. And there was the redemption at the end, at the very end, from the same Rachel Dawes, which I think was also essential for that in his character being so highly de- developmental mm. at the stage but that was a seven-year lapse though as well from um during yeah. the trial period so quite Very significant, significant. Uh, amount of time and elapsed i yeah. think a lot of the the anger that rachel also feels in this moment is that you've been gone for seven years what makes you think you can come back and think you can serve justice the like in some kind of cold-blooded killing fashion the same way that joe chill done in the alleyway what makes you have the right to do that and and I think she only does this because she finds a way to support her case by showing Bruce Wayne that the city is worse than ever. And, you know, since Thomas Wayne has been taken out of the picture of Gotham City, things are just getting worse. 
Carmine Falcone is getting more powerful in the whole underground criminal world, right? Yeah. And so it's so great that uh, this piece of direction that Nolan decides to take where the characters in the car, they're going from regular Gotham City where everything looks kind of normal and then they go into the underground. And the underground, they refer to this place, which we only know in The Dark Knight, as Lower Fifth, right? And it's 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 all filmed in Chicago, and Lower Fifth in Chicago is actually called Lower Wacker. That's the real name of the, the okay. underground part, Lower Wacker. And Lower wow. Wacker, I don't think is as, um, I don't think it's as grimy or full of poverty the way that the Dark Knight trilogy um, presents it. But um, there is obviously some homeless stuff that happens down there as well. Uh, yeah, so that's called Lower Wacker, but in the film they call it Lower Fifth, but we don't know that until The Dark Knight. So I think it's, it's such a great choice for us to take the characters physically um, into this area because there's, there's geographical locating, which I like about films when they do that, when they take us into these different areas to show mm. a sense of uh, space, but also show a sense of how big the environment that they're operating in. Um, and so getting into the underground yeah. thing was like, and, and then they park up just outside Falcone's um, door. And I love the timing of all this. You know, she's, she's going through this whole kind of monologue thing, explaining how bad things are, and then times it well for them pulling up at the front door of Falcone, saying, you know, this is your opportunity now. If you want to stop crime, you know, why don't you just walk through that door? Yeah, look... Gotham City is not a place that you want to go for a visit, you know, obviously. You, you don't want to, you know, get a, an Airbnb <laughs> anywhere for a night out. But the, the city itself, like, one moment it looked like, you know, Chicago and a really great sanitised version of Singapore. And then all of a sudden you see an element of a, a Gothic-designed uh, industrial railway overhead, um, which it didn't fit, like, what... I, that That... that that aspect kind of confused me a bit. And then we're in the depths of um, exactly the, the mm. area that you were describing. So it, it that was possibly like mm. an intentional journey, like to get to, yeah. to a dark But I also think, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's very intentional to show us the vast differences um, within Gotham. You know, you have super rich, super wealthy, high-tech city, also having sure. um, a big disparity between the upper class and the lower class. But that lower class is is a huge consequence of crime being so bad in Gotham, which is, is kind of ironic because they use Chicago, and Chicago is one of the most like highest crime rate cities in the United States. It's actually kind of funny. Well, it's not funny. Yeah. I shouldn't laugh about that. But, <laughs> but the yeah, go but ahead. It was a good lead-in, though. It was a great lead-in because we were, we were on the verge then of, of then getting into like rock mm. bottom. And we we learned everybody that that could influence um, society that was in that mm-hmm. place, and then we get to meet my other other favorite actor and character, Carmine Falcone. Oh yeah, I think yeah. he was he played he played the 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 crime boss just perfectly. Now that particular actor we've seen him before in different areas. In fact, most. Um, recently is as a German Nazi uh, general, I think, um, 
uh, in a Tom Cruise movie, I think, and he he did that very well. But this was he, he his acting in this um, a really gritty, uh, dirty, dirty mm. character without making it camp or an over sort of accentuated caricature of what like a yeah. crime boss would be. Brilliant. As it's yet yeah, my second favorite wow, actor in the movie. Okay, Tom Tom Wilkinson yeah. is his name, and um, yeah, I think he's right. a good actor too. Uh, I think Carmine Falcone plays um, uh, a useful role in the story of Batman because yes. you know, with the amount of actors in this movie, it's a lot, right? It's it's a huge, huge cast, and they're not they're not low hitters either. They're they're big hitters, right? Like these are some very very popular no. names. When you think about Morgan Freeman and Gary Oldman, you think that these famous actors and Michael Caine, right? You think these famous actors would be the lead of a film, but they're not. They're support. That support characters to Christian Bale being like probably arguably the most non-famous person in this whole cast at this point of time, you know, 2005. Um, and, and I think the movie that you're talking about where Tom Wilkinson is in, it's uh, Valkyrie. Valkyrie, yeah. yeah. Valkyrie, yeah, That thank was a film you, directed yes. by Brian Singer. Um, and I, I really enjoy Valkyrie. Um, I also love how there's no happy ending to I it. I do too. Um, but it's the, the you know the happy ending the non happy ending is is quite earned in the film and I think Tom Cruise is awesome in the movie. But we shouldn't be talking about Valkyrie. Though. Yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it wasn't a happy ending. No, really, I mean neither was the movie Titanic. We knew it was going to happen. Like it wasn't going to work out well. But the story it 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 nailed it, and he was a good great mm-hmm. character in that too. So, but Camille Falcone, yeah, awesome, yeah, awesome yeah, man. good, good, good crime boss. I actually, for me, he's not my favorite. He's not even like in the top four of my or top five characters for me in this movie. Um, there are some aspects that I think he's like, he's a little okay. bit weak in, but we'll get into his character a little bit later when we, especially when we get to Act Two. Um, so okay. you know, we we go from this part of uh, Bruce Wayne you're right like he's he's kind of hit rock bottom and he needs to do something he needs to change his his lifestyle and this is how we see bruce wayne get into his league of shadows training um and then he doesn't return Mm -hmm. back to gotham until seven years later so um bruce realizes that she is right bruce decides to confront falcone himself but the mob boss dismisses him as an ignorant uh, is it ignorant of nature of the world, underworld, saying, you're Bruce Wayne, the prince of, prince of Gotham. You'd have to go a thousand miles to find someone who doesn't know your name. Now, this line didn't become so obvious to me, and it's, it's so on the nose, but it wasn't on the nose when I was like listening to those. Because, you know, with all these kind of dialogue sequences, there's so many of them, and it's hard to re- pay close, close attention half the time because um, some of the more important ones become much more vital to you understanding the story but this line here you'd have to go a thousand miles to find someone who doesn't know your name it's key to him actually going a thousand miles away <laughs> you know um, I, i'm not sure if this is exactly the point where bruce sure. is like yeah you're right i need to leave um but it's I, I thought it was such an interesting line when i was watching the film again i'm like oh yeah maybe this is the the kind of tipping point for him he's, he's right i need to go a thousand miles away to find myself or find some kind of purpose and and this anger and this, you know, whatever is boiling under the surface. Having his thugs rough him up, uh, realizing that Falcone is right and that he cannot truly understand what he intends to fight as a wealthy playboy. He abandons his life at home, 
stowing away a car a cargo ship and traveling the world for nearly seven years huge big 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 stuff so we get him over in uh the mountains the himalaya mountains he's um now in the training of Ra's al Ghul and League of Shadows. Um, mm-hmm. Did you at all pick out that Ra's al Ghul was going to be Liam Neeson's character? Was that a huge surprise for you by the end? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was yeah absolutely. Well. Yeah, because, I mean, not, you know, it's like 30 below degrees and you've got this impractically dressed uh, villain in wearing a Xenia suit <laughs> in... <laughs> In the Himalayas, um, it, it wasn't the first thing that I thought would be him. But he looked great. Looked great. Needed some more work on the, the facial hair. I like hair, that the, facial hair, know. though. I like the we moustache. All, we were, I, I kind of thought, are we going Doctor Strange here? I'm not too sure. <laughs> I wasn't like... Needed some assistance. There, there, there anyway. is a little bit of correlation there with Doctor Strange because, you know, Doctor Strange also goes to the Himalayas to learn his dark magic. uh uh-huh. Um, and there is, well, there's no magic in yes. this, but there's ninjas and there's people with long beards. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was totally surprised <laughs> that Ken Watanabe, who plays quote unquote Ra's al Ghul, who's not actually Ra's al Ghul, I actually did think that he was going to be the classic Ra's al Ghul. Mm. But um, of course, we get a surprise at the end. Yeah, I'm not even sure if he was kind of like meant to be the the compliance officer for the the actual training facility because he left all the explosives within reach of the like a burning cauldron there. That wasn't yeah, very smart. They definitely anyway. don't have a inventory management system. Like health and safety, <laughs> OHNS doesn't one. exist in this place in the dungeon. Um, the legion, <laughs> the legion, or whatever. Oh, sorry, the League of Shadows. Um, cool name for a group, yeah, yeah. Though, League of Shadows. Yeah. Yeah, very foreboding, and very much so. it's great how they revisit the League of Shadows in The Dark Knight Rises with um, the rise of Bane <laughs> with a very yes. odd voice that you cannot hear yes. half the time. No, it wasn't an odd voice. It was Sean Connery. That's what we were hearing, <laughs> all right? Now, you know, you, know you, can't, uh, you can't unthink that now that I've said oh it. Gosh, it was Sean right. Connery because we never actually... <laughs> Sorry. You ruined the main character for me. <laughs> uh, you know, um, this is uh, this is actually so cool how we see his training though in the League of Shadows. You know, we we see him like do a yeah. bunch of kind of parkour type stuff on the logs, which that, that log training aspect reminds me a lot of old kung fu films where they're training on logs as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Because, I mean, Bruce's character up until that point, he was just a street fighting yeah. thug rolling around in skills. mud. Yeah. That, that's all we saw. Again, what I said earlier, he learned everything, including his skills from, from yeah. well, the criminal element. Yeah. He learns a lot of yeah. very relevant fighting skills, hand-to-hand combat stuff and ninja training. Like, I think... Um, Razalgo specifically says ninjutsu is the kind of art form that he's learning, but yeah. I think he's also learning like other valuable um, fighting martial arts and whatever. Uh, so that's that's such a key thing because we don't actually know how Bruce Wayne gets these fighting skills. Otherwise, you know, and this is why the origin story is as good as it can get for an origin story for Batman because we don't know his fighting background. 
Like, how can he go from this traumatized, really wealthy kid to just being this, like, amazing fighting person <laughs> as Batman later on? So, yeah. Yeah. If um if you noticed, um Liam Neeson actually didn't do a lot of the fighting. In fact, a lot of his scenes were cut down and and really filmed mm. incredibly close. So he probably wasn't skilled. And I mean, that kind of got me thinking as to why... <laughs> Well, yeah, but the, yeah, with the Jedi is yeah, there's choreography involved, and there wasn't a lot of choreo- choreography in the fighting mm. in this movie. Yeah, either. true, true. Uh, one of the things, one yeah. of the problems that I have with this movie is actually the way Christopher Nolan shoots the fighting sequences, especially the hand-to-hand combat stuff. Um, I have a little bit of issue with that, but we'll definitely get into that once we get to the first stage of Batman doing his vigilante. Sure. I, I guess I'm sort of comparing it to like John Wick because John Wick is all about the choreography. That's what it's sure. majorly about. But um, that's a that is different a movie. Different sort of movie. Like, like um, so yeah, yeah. There's, there's a couple of sequences that I do love in this whole um, this whole section of the film where he's with the League of Shadows, and we can't quite go into all of it just for the, because of the sake of time. But one of the sequences I want to point out is the ice sequence. You know when. They're, they're fighting on the ice and it's yes. you know slippery as heck, right? And he's um, he has this. Yep. This is the first kind of moment that we get of um, Ra's al Ghul being the kind of father figure that is continuing on from Thomas Wayne. You know, so in the absence of Thomas Wayne, um, Ra's al Ghul becomes his father in a way, right? He's, he's mentoring him, telling him mm-hmm. what is what is the differences between right and wrong. What are the things that you are willing to do to make sure that justice is fulfilled? And it's such a great scene between them two and fighting on the ice. It, it's sort of, it's a balancing act of him being incredibly exhausted and cold <laughs> while also, you know, sort of putting him in such a, an uncomfortable space that you need to make a decision, Right. So as the dialogue is happening, he's telling him that you need to make very, very critical decisions that no one else is willing to make. And he kind of has to make that because he's fighting on the ice and he's also really cold. So, Yes. It, look, interesting that you said that because I, I liked that, the framing in this because for, for whatever reason... Um, all of a sudden, I snap back to uh, the childhood Bruce Wayne watching mm. the opera, and it was that moment. It was that cavernous staged scene where this the same element was being, and the same fears that he was confronting were actually being like examined yep. now again. So, and that was a that was a, a moment to act. So, but but it, it was Very actually good. beautiful. Like uh, even the the the. the the, the the brilliance of the of, of the light and the absence of flaring mm, very yeah. nice it's, very it's nice. really really well shot i mean this whole film is really well shot you know hats off to the dop wally fister director of photography who continues to make or well, not to the state but you know he, he became like sort of a regular dop for nolan's films um yeah it's such a good scene probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie yeah yeah i might try that one day sword fighting on the ice <laughs> Needed a lifesaver. It's probably going to teach all of us some really valuable really life lessons to making very difficult choices. You know, fighting on the yeah. ice with a bunch of swords. And I like how <laughs> <laughs> we don't have ice here in Sydney, though. <laughs> That's the problem. You know, you know, there's the pop up ice rinks that they do. 
uh, over in like just outside the cathedral. Yeah. They do it like every Christmas. That could be the perfect time yes. to reenact that scene. Yes. All right, let's, let's put that, that in. in then, mate. Okay. Just find find me a lifesaver. <laughs> um, I do, and I know you I have do, them. I, I know you have, have one. Anyway, <laughs> um, actually, you know, another good piece of detail. Um, this is also to justify the the costume that Bruce Wayne builds. You know, by using with the help of Lucius Fox's. Yes. Um, this is like great detailing uh, for the character. Is when they are fighting in the League of Shadows. Um, or especially like on the eye sequence, he has the spikes, you know, the sort of forearm spikes on the side, and that's just a part of the yes. armor that they use in the Lord of League of Shadows. Great piece of justification and detailing for the character later on. Because you always kind of wonder, you know, what is the logic behind the bat suit, other than the obvious thing of him being fearful of bats. But it's it's down to small details such as like the, right. the I don't know what you call them, but the, the razors on the side of the forearm. You know, and he uses that also to save yeah. Raz al Ghul. You know, he uses it to stop when he's going down the ice. That 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 was a that was a nice element, and it threw me back to like decades prior. It was great, like dredging those sort of like moments up again because that's what, where I'm back to. Okay, we're back into Batman. This is where this is, we're, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, where we are, yeah, exactly. and that was good. So yeah. we're going to jump into Act 2. There's there's probably a bunch of other sequences that we could have liked. Was there other sequences in Act 1 that you liked that we haven't spoken about yet? No? Uh, not necessarily, no. no yeah. Not- um, oh. So we jump into Act 2. Bruce Wayne returns 20 years after the Wayne murders. Bruce returns to Gotham City that is mostly ruled by Falcone and begins plotting a one-man war against the corrupt system. He seeks the help of Rachel, now now an assistant district attorney uh, and police sergeant Jim Gordon. Okay, so he's police sergeant, you know, apologies, he's not lieutenant, but he's, I don't know the ranking system, you know, is it like, is it sergeant, is it lieutenant before Commissioner Gordon? I don't know what it is. Because we know that from, <laughs> from the Dark Knight, halfway through or just over halfway through in the dark night he gets promoted to commissioner gordon so and this he is police sergeant jim gordon yes. who consoled him in the aftermath of his parents' mm-hmm. murder bruce pays a visit to gordon one night in disguise to establish communication i actually like this you know when he's like the first we call it like mark one batman costume where it's just a balaclava and he's got a little bit of armor that he gets from lucius fox um it's so great how he. This is the first interaction he sets up what their relationship is going to be in the future, right? And he uses a a stapler yes. gun <laughs> as you know, sort of posing <laughs> like you know, pretending that it's it's a gun. I might try that. I don't know if it's going to work, but <laughs> what would you do in that situation if you had something at the back of your head? Sure. Uh, I can't remember the first thing that he says to him, but you know, it's it's something that's frightening enough for you to think that it's obviously a gun yeah yeah but but he 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 actually asks like um what what, what's our relationship and and he actually says i i think you're trying to help like so from there it's kind of we've relaxed into a really comfortable relationship and he's going to invite him in like he doesn't look at him as um a vigilante Okay, yeah, something yeah, much more legitimate. I, I think it's 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 obviously very key for how their relationship turns out, um, but it's also kind of one of those things where 
you might just have to apply a little bit of film logic here because I think realistically, if, if someone was to hold a gun to your head if you're a police sergeant, I don't think your first instinct is to think, okay, I think I should work with this guy, regardless of what he's saying. Because, you know, whatever whatever this person, right. even if they are on his on his side or our side as police force, uh, I'm not going to sort of immediately think, okay, mm-hmm. I want to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> it's like pretty sure you're going to try and hunt this person down with your police investigation skills. <laughs> but you apply a little bit of film logic here because this has to be cradled into the story, right? Um, well, yeah, you're going to have to document this one way or the other. That's what the yeah, 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 yeah. But, sort of but I suppose the undertone to that logic is the fact that, you know, Jim Gordon and the police force, they know how corrupt the city is and they're sort of losing hope. And I think if there's, if there's a point that I would like to add in the story is showing us a bit more of um, behind the scenes for the police, um, police force as well. How are they reacting to the criminal world? Because as far as we're concerned in this film, the police force is only really corrupt, you know, because we're dealing with corrupt cops, we're dealing with corrupt political um, proponents, and we're dealing we're dealing with a lot of corrupt people, and they're all sort of a part of this thing. And Jim Gordon and maybe a handful of police detectives and sergeants, whatever, are all on the sort of good side, and they're wanting to see some kind of revival in Gotham City. Yeah. Um, Quite true. Gotham, look, it's a metaphor for the rest of the world and society, I think. And possibly not not just America, but Mm. I I think that's where Christopher was going with this. Because in elements like that, you'd send in the bloody army. Yeah, where's the army? You know, (laughs) and they weren't, they were, they were left alone. Like, you know, things like the shit really got bad. And yet there was no help coming from outside. They were left alone to their own devices. And like, they were purely... It's a it's an abandoned yeah. um, city. You always have to wonder the, the nation. Like, so, yeah, where's anyway. like international intervention here? <laughs> uh, it's a Gotham City story. Yeah. It's a Batman story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, after reestablishing his connections to his father's company, Wayne Enterprises, Bruce is able to acquire, with the help of former board member Lucius Fox an armored off-road vehicle and an experimental body armor. He he augments the suit with League of Shadows gauntlets, and this is the the razor, the forearm razor thing that I'm talking about, and a special cape that can become a rudimentary hand, hang, hang, not hand, hang glider. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Lucius Fox for a second, you know, played by um, Morgan Freeman. We, we don't get an introduction to Morgan Freeman until it's probably like the hour mark or something, or just over an hour that we get our first Morgan Freeman. It's just kind of surprising. How often can you, can you watch movies with uh-huh. Morgan Freeman and he doesn't appear until like an hour later? <laughs> sure. No, you're, you're right. But I mean, Morgan Freeman is a great orator as well. Is that because he does all those documentaries? That is one of his functions <laughs> in this movie. That's yeah, where I was going with this as well. Yep, I think we're kind of comfortable with that because he gets brilliant well, lines. I think you can give him shit lines and it will still sound amazing, though. Yeah, he's just that guy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he did 
he, he did play God in one movie, if you recall, right? Yeah, he did. He did. Is he is he the best person to play God? Uh-huh. I mean, I think that's like the default. That's the benchmark, right? Like his tone of voice is the benchmark for God. Who could who could supersede him? Oh uh, yeah, how, how many gods? Which god out of the three thousand we talking about? Let's. Yeah, I'm sure he's a good oh, one of them. So. The guy with the piercing in three. Oh, you mean three hundred or three thousand? Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah. In all the gods yeah, we've yeah, had in a yeah. lot you're, 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 you're of talking them, more so. pantheistic yeah. gods, right? Where there's a multitude of gods. To- to- totally. Um, yeah. yeah, Lucius Fox, played by Morgan Freeman. Let's talk about Batman for a little bit, because I think he's he's a great character in this, and a, and a pretty important mm. character for like in terms of utility and you know the the justification around Bruce Wayne acquiring all this technology, which is great because you know in the comics he's it's 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 yep. all down to bruce wayne himself he's the one that acquires all the technology himself he builds it himself builds all the suits what did you think about you know having an element of a scientist building the suit for him look that 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 was clever because in the storyline they essentially um mentioned that he was the only person that knew anything about any of this he was kind of like a Fox Mulder, like sitting in in the basement. Um, Did you just give uh, a X Files kind reference? of quarantines down there? <laughs> y- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and he wa- Fox was the same. They put him in the basement, like no one, like the 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 unloved child, like you know, let's the dysfunctional special school sort of like kid, you know, let's put him down there because his theory is like he's too. Too big picture, and mm. Lucius was. I mean, the guy was a genius. But it also showed that out of all the engineers and the designers that should be involved in all of this stuff, no, it's yeah, it's all Lucius. Like, yeah. So we, yeah. we know that he's. It was kind of one. Right. I was wondering, sort of like, wow, Lucius is just. He has to be the busiest guy ever to build all this tech. It's like we don't see anyone else building any of this tech. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it's already built, yes, but and, and that's kind of uh, the foreground, I suppose, you know. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot going on there, like, yeah, you know, for him. Yeah. He, man, he had his hands full, you know, and what, one of the uh, only one of two, three people that, um, you know, knew whose yeah. identity actually was. He was. So, so it kept so, things very, very tight. Until you make friends with the yeah, Justice yeah. League, right? It's, it's then everybody really knows. Well kept secret anyway. after the Justice League knows about it. But, you know, Lucius Fox is, no. uh, is he the, he's the second person that knows about him being Batman. The first person being Alfred. And then the second, I'm pretty sure, is Lucius Fox. Uh, I love yeah. I love the chemistry between the, the two of them, though. You know, the, the chemistry of being... This is kind of the levity that we need in such a film that's so dense and so emotionally draining, is that you need to have a little bit of levity. Right, and yes. you take a break from that heavy, dramatic, sometimes mono—not mono—melodramatic um, uh, sense of storytelling, and you introduce a character, Lucius Fox, who has a comedic element to him. You know, he's got humor, but it's not—it's not, it's not um, slapstick or cheesy mm-hmm. humor. It's the kind of humor that is needed in a film like this, and it's the—it's the right amount of humor. I, I would say, you know, you don't want to have too much humor because you. You, you don't want to have cheap cheap shots to creating liberty in this in such a story, but uh, Morgan Freeman is is great. All the lines that he has, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the lines that he has is ad libbed as well. You know, it seems like a Morgan Freeman ad lib. Yeah, look, 
he had in this movie we saw mm. a lot of sarcasm from Lucius, okay, yeah. as opposed to humor. Like he was kind of like there was sarcasm and 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 meanings behind every with intent with everything. Yeah, the sarcasm slapped down, and it, it so. continues a lot more good. in the Dark Knight as well. Yeah. You know, you remember the line, like, I, I shouldn't talk about this during the Batman Begins Gods, but I'm going to say it anyway, the line that he says, um, uh, Bruce Wayne says, uh, how well does it do against dogs? And he goes, and he said, are we talking Rottweilers or Chihuahuas? It should do fine against cats. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such, such good lines. That, he probably has yeah, some that was clever. Lines. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And look, that you, okay, there there were good lines here, but a lot of the even yeah. better lines were for the next movie. So with with really Mr. Heath Ledger. That's where we so, are. But anyway, back so to the, uh, we yeah. uh, after this whole let's say like uh, allocation of different gadgets and yeah, go ahead, you're about to say something. Yeah, yeah, you. Tumblr, I yeah. mean, like the tumbler. Okay, and this was probably the first time that we'd gone from um, mm. like something that wasn't like a roadster to something that was pure, yeah. purely brutal utility. Um, but again, the tech is sort of like out there. It's registered probably if you want to do your homework, you could probably find the parts for this and sort of like investigate it. It was in I remember in, in, in some of the, the cartoon um, series, we, we saw uh, a vehicle that was more like a... Um, uh, a streetcar sort of um, uh, type of, which I mean, parts would have been, been available, you know, everywhere. So you couldn't track, like, who was purchasing these sort of mm. like parts or anything like, like a muscle car, I guess. Um, so this for, this was quite fantastical. The the, the tumbler itself, very different to what I thought. Like a sleek, um, uh, the the other the other Batmobiles were almost yeah. organic in, yeah. in some respects too. So this is also a point to be made about acquiring all this technology as well is that there's there's always a reasonable justification as to why all this tech exists to it's a lot of exposition you know to sort of go through oh this is the reason why we have the armor this is the reason why we have the tumbler this is the reason why we have um like uh what else like you know yeah. uh, grappling hooks you know this is the reason or there, there's a lot of expositional dialogue to justify all these tools which is it's cool it's cool it's pretty chunky it's like it's it's a lot to try and like delve into but i think it still somewhat fits in um this but there's probably times where i'm like uh, i don't i don't need sure. you to explain every bit of reason why you have a grappling hook or you, why you have a like you know uh, the fabric. You know there's there's a lot of detailed explanations around the fabric and how it becomes like a memory fabric. You know all that type of stuff. The I'm like memory okay, fabric. Yeah, I could probably do without yeah. it. You know, I'm I'm happy to just not have explanations for everything. <laughs> yeah, but I get the intent behind it, right? I think Nolan always has a yeah, yeah, a true. need to explain everything when it comes to acquiring such things because he doesn't do that with his general storytelling he likes to bait the audience in and he likes to trust the audience a lot of the time with figuring out how the story is going to unfold um yeah 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 there was a lot of that, that stuff mm. going on so we get to 
Arkham Asylum, right? During his first night as Batman, he disrupts a drug mm-hmm. shipment by Falcone and leaves the mob boss tied to a searchlight, forming mm-hmm. a makeshift back signal. <laughs> I like how this is how he he sort of invents the bat signal without inventing the bat signal. Um, is he uses uh, yeah. Falcone as kind of the the bat itself? I, but I was, it's funny because I'm looking at that scene. I'm going. When did he have time to cut up his coat to create the, <laughs> the bat wings? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was actually inspiring. I love that. That I, do, I I'd love to know how that came about because you know we're, we're looking at a, a, a person that was almost like crucified onto that light onto something that was meant mm-hmm. to instill fear. Not it wasn't like a you know a summoning mm-hmm. because you know. We had the bat phone for that. The commissioner had direct access to Batman, but it was kind of like for every criminal that or anyone thinking about doing crime, it's like, man, it, is yeah. Batman coming for me? Is that is that who this is for? Kind of like it's like a a, a warning, and to really shake up Gotham, it was yeah. kind of like a a preemptive sort of like you know slap it's in the very face. Very clever. I thought that yeah. yeah, that was good. It was great that they introduced that. I, yeah, I, li- I like that. I love it as well. I love the, the fact it. that you. You show us how you're going to make your mark across Gotham City. And yes, it, it is kind of a. Yep. It's symbolism. It's definitely symbolism for the criminals. But also, what a way to do that by yes. putting someone as powerful as Falcone as like the the person, you know? Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Th- this, is, this is where I get a little bit. Um, uh, one of the things that I. I I wanted to see more of is Kama, like Kama Falcone being a bit more of a threat to someone like Batman because it, <clears throat> I can understand that Batman has to rise to be the Batman of Gotham City, but um, it, it didn't feel like Falcone was a huge threat to Batman. <laughs> like I know he takes on the persona to be something that's going to be more frightening than Kama and Falcone, but it seemed quite easy for Batman to just be like, oh, okay, you're just come on Falcone. I'm just going to take you down anyway. And, you know, maybe that is supported by Bruce Wayne and his interaction with Falcone in person, you know, just before he leaves for his like OE to becoming <laughs> a member of the League of Shadows. But um, I just didn't think, you know, as a, as a crime Lord, he wasn't as menacing or threatening as I think he should have been as a crime Lord. Yeah, mm, I see where you're going with this. He, he, he. Look, I mean, he, the the crime lord he, he enables. He, exactly, he's the enabler, yeah. and he he kind of like directs and makes decisions. That, that, that's what they do. But I would have liked to have yeah. seen him like hold a gun and not run. Like yeah. I, I, I wanted to see more of a stronger character. So he deserved more. Maybe yeah, it could have been cut the out. The film is so. quite long. Um, the yeah. film is like almost two and a half hours long, but. Um, there, I would have liked to see sequences like what you're saying is like, you know, maybe he has a time where he's, he's having a little bit of a grapple situation with Batman or something to show a little bit of physical presence. But, um, yeah, he, you're right. He's yeah. an enabler because we know that the main villain of the story is Ra's al Ghul. He's, he's the puppeteer behind this whole thing, but, and, and Falcon is just the pawn in the game, but yeah, I would have liked to see something. Sure. We had some very strong characters as well. I mean, I mean, Scarecrow um, 
you know, you could mm. probably put him in the same well, sort of like Scarecrow as well. to me was more menacing. Um, I mean, he was he was way more threatening than Kamal Falcone. And of course, he's like if you if you look at it as a tier system, you know, Falcone's like bottom, and then you got Scarecrow just above him, and then you have Razak Ghul, right? That's kind of the whole criminal structure, and. And what I like about this structure yep. too is that they're all kind of double crossing each other at the same time. <laughs> uh, they don't, you know, Falcone doesn't know the real purpose and intentions of Ra's al Ghul. He's just working in tandem with Ra's al Ghul so that he can continue his drug laundering and, you know, money laundering behavior as a crime lord, which we, we know later in The Dark Knight that that's not enough to be a crime lord. This is exactly what Joker points out to the whole kind of uh, gang ring or the Falcone slash uh, Maroni in <laughs> the Dark Knight. Why do all these names, eh? all these like Italian names, <laughs> classic <laughs> Italian mob bosses. Um, but, you know, being a mob boss is not enough. You know, getting getting money and drugs is, is not enough. That's just not how you become a threatening villain in the eyes of Joker. And that's why Joker is... I shouldn't talk about the Dark Knight, but... <laughs> uh, um, but you know, this is this is somewhat like <laughs> unintentionally setting up how weak the mob is in Gotham City. Because remember, like in Gotham City, it's all about the powerful villains, not the mob. The mob yeah. are just like four guys. Is is another sort of line that is in the Dark Knight. But you know that they're, they're all just pawns of the major chess piece. The major chess piece is you have you know your bishops, you have your king and queen. Your king and queens are like your Jokers, your Riddlers, your Two Face, mm-hmm. your you know these big powerhouse villains and so the mob plays a role in a sense of being the pawns of the game and so it's it's probably unfair for me to be highly critical of someone like Kama and Falcone because you know he is just a pawn in the game but you know I, I I still would have liked to see some kind of physical challenge you know where he kind of grapples him the same way that Bane grapples Batman and uh, the Dark Knight Rises yeah yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, like Ra's al Ghul, it's for altruistic purposes, whether it's um, nefarious or very positive or whatever. Yeah. It's it's very self righteous. But Falcone, yeah, they're just um, they they're kind of like they, they mm-hmm. perpetuate the scales of economy for crime, sort of thing. They bottom, are bottom feeders. Bottom but, feeders. You know, the, you the know, League of Shadows sort of don't so need bottom feeders like uh, feeders for uh, some kind of economic stability to run their operations because everything is completely illegal for the, for the League of Shadows. And also the League of Shadows, we don't really know how they operate financially as a system <laughs> because, yeah, we can probably infer that some of the money is going to them, but ultimately they don't care about the money. They just care about justice in the self-righteous manner. Yeah, that I don't think they differentiated um, who like yeah. good and bad. All they wanted was it's like a purging. Like they, they I, wanted I think, a purging. You know, casual. Yeah, hey, yeah. That's a very good word for it, actually. River purging. It was. It was again. You know, a, a reset. Like start again. Like for whatever reason, and, yeah. and only they very, can measure very it. It's, it's very much very the selfish. same kind of um, Thanos mm. subjective as well. You know, in the Avengers saga and. It's like this whole self-righteous oh, hell yeah. pursuit to I never made to that take connection. Everybody eradicate everybody. Well, yeah. for him, for Thanos, it was like fifty percent. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that? I mean, that's what a narcissist or a psychopath mm-hmm. or a sociopath would do. 
you know, there, there's a mental illness aspect mm. to all of this, a definite psychology. So, all and of us, yeah. all of us can do this. Let's not, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, but it's, it's moral ambiguity, capable. I think, is at the same time, is that there isn't, there's, it's moral ambiguity in the sense that in Razal Ghul's mind, he is doing the right thing. And Thanos is the same, he's doing the right thing. And uh-huh. maybe everybody's goal is the same but the approach is kind of different. And this is where um, this is where you can get to some kind of moral consensus. Is that, look, we're all kind of wanting to achieve the same thing. You know, we want to have better resources. We want to have um, resources accessible to every single person on this living planet. Maybe purging the planet is not the right cause of action, but let's try something else. Maybe let's try do better farming and let's try and cheapen the costs of goods and services. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, no, that, no, you're right no. there. It, it's coming down to like morality. Well, mm. that's very subjective. Everyone's morals is different, you know. But mm. being a good person, you're just being a good person. But the aspect of morality is yeah, for that's, another that's, podcast. Uh, that's debatable. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so he disrupts an assassination. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, jumping into the wrong part. Um, yeah. So this is this is kind of jumping back a little bit because we're going back and forth because of the way the story is told in this film. He also disrupts an assassination attempt on Dawes, leaving her with the evidence against a judge that has gone soft mm-hmm. on Falcone in the past. While investigating the, quote, unusual, unquote, drugs in the shipment, Batman is stunned by Dr. Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow who sprays him with a powerful hallucinogen after being set on fire by the scarecrow. Batman <laughs> escapes and puts the fire out off of him. Batman is rescued by Alfred, administered an antitoxin developed by Fox. Two days later, Bruce awakens on his 13th birthday. Oh, 13th, 30th birthday <laughs> oh gosh the scarecrow <laughs> later poisons rachel after showing her that the toxin which is revealed to only be harmful in vapor form and is being piped into gotham's water supply she is saved by batman the police enter the asylum and batman escapes with rachel in his tank after administering the antidote to rachel in his cave he gives her two vials of of it for Gordon, one for the detective to inoculate himself, and the other to mass produce for city's population. You're about to say something. I uh, saw so you're about to say something. <laughs> okay. Oh, look. Yeah, look. I, I'm just kind of like um, I don't know what it, what he was a doctor of. Okay, uh, as a therapist, he kind of sucked. Yeah. <laughs> that was obvious. Um, but you know, he was he. He developed a, a drug that could either give you, make you a little bit fuzzy or, you know, knock you out for three days or in Rachel's uh, mm-hmm. situation, bring you to near death. Honestly, those dosages, dosages yeah. are kind of like wild. But then th- throw it into the, mm. the city's underground water system, um, which flows under a city, which to me, that, that didn't make a lot of sense either. But it was sitting there for two weeks. And like in that time, and it, it basically relies on vaporization, thanks to the microwave-enabled um, uh, um, machines yeah. that were a Wayne Enterprise device again. 
Um, to, to basically uh, vaporize the, the, the chemical to make it um, uh, toxic in, in that respect. So nobody in that time ever had like a hot shower or maybe a steam bath, <laughs> but, you know, did all the things that, you know, involved steam. <laughs> kind of, I think they left that bit out because no one called in sick saying, look, I'm, I'm either near death or I'm just seeing like, yeah, that, that was in. Sort of I think a lot of that's in the deleted scenes. I can't come into work today. <laughs> <laughs> but you're kind of right. I mean, if if you if you have to really pull this movie right. apart, okay. um, in terms of its, uh, uh, we call them, I guess, plots of exposition on certain conduits of the film. In this case, sure. it's the hallucinogen yeah if you were to pull it apart of course you could kind of think yeah well what about this and what about this situation what happens like to all the other industries that are using steam as well <laughs> um I don't, I don't know the technical details around this maybe there is like a scientific <laughs> justification for this it's like no you need to atomize it to a point where it's like um, you know, 0.0025 parts per million in order for it to be effective. Well, I don't know. <laughs> sure. Brilliant. And let's ba bake some cakes at yeah. the same time with yeah. this machine. Like, it's going to do all that. But, you know, you, you, get, you go in for a facial at a beauty salon yeah, and yeah. you end up batshit crazy. Maybe like, all the patients that went off. to those beauty salons did <laughs> go batshit crazy. They probably are batshit crazy before they even get there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, it's 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 a very chunky. It's a very bloated part of the story. You know, this this sort of gets us into the Act Three part. Um, but you know, before we get into Act Three, there are some yeah. some key moments that happens with uh, Jonathan Crane Scarecrow. Um, this is also the point where he turns. Uh, Falcone Falcone, Falcone, Carmine Falcone, he renders him pretty much irrelevant for the rest of the film, you know, when he sprays him with the toxin inside the interrogation room. And, mm. you know, Rachel Dawes kind of picks up, she, she becomes a very good investigator. I think she is a very good investigator in general, even though she doesn't play an investigator, but she has the skills to investigate uh, a lot of different activities that are happening. And especially with the case of her trying to put someone like Falcone away, she says to Dr. Crane, like, isn't it convenient that, you know, a person who has no history of mental illness all of a sudden has a mental illness breakdown or episode and becomes um, completely psychotic? Isn't that convenient? And that's when Dr. Crane... Well, picks up that, okay, Rachel Dawes pretty much has figured out that this whole operation is bogus and is all false. I need to do something about this. Yeah, okay. Look, um, mm. Killian Murphy, um, Scarecrow, Doctor, character, um, apart from being a very, very beautiful man, like playing that role, I'm not sure if, like, even he was the right person to, to play that character. Um, but but there were, again, I'm going back to the aspect of the drug itself, like it sent Falcone mm. kind of like insane, apparently. Um, but look, at it, for purposes mm. of the movie... And they do mention that there has to be some so. lethal high doses of this stuff to be effective. So, you know, if, if there's a counter-argument to your nitpicking about, like, you know, people in showers and in beauty salons, then maybe it's a lethal dosage that has to be the reason. Sure. 
But, you know, I'm, I won't nit, nitpick on that, but another convoluted uh, way of, of enabling, like you're going to a process. I mean, you know what? A bomb is way quicker. <laughs> it's a lot more predictable. You can do a lot more damage. It has a defined mm. purpose. I mean, let, let's do a scoping exercise on this. Like this was a, this was true. a huge task organizing this process, but I'd love to, to meet the, uh, the, pro- true, the project manager. But they had to one. find a way I mean, to link in job. the Wayne's enterprise and also linking in um, the, the League of Shadows. Yeah. Remember the League of Shadows are people who remain literally in the shadows. So if they're the ones that are going to detonate a bomb, I don't think they're going to be in the shadows very often. <laughs> um, so, you know, there has to be some kind of way for them to inject, you know, I, I think a poison is a good way of doing it. Whether it's like the hallucinogen was the right poison and the way they dealt with the hallucinogen, probably not the best system because, yeah, again, you can pull that apart and be like, well, it could have been... It could have happened a long time ago. But we also don't know the vastness of Gotham. We don't really know how big it is. We know that it's big, but how big is big? Is it like, is it 10 million people? Mm. Is it 50 million people? We don't, we're not really sure. But the the vapor escapes only in the slums, like in the underground, right? Um, and, mm. you know, it's there, there's that whole kind of part, especially in Act 3, where the train has to go to Gotham Tower because that's where the central mains are. Like this whole this whole kind of thing is is so it's so bloated that there's just it's it's a lot of unnecessary exposition that happens. It's kind of like oh, okay, there's there's so many things happening right now. There's 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 horses, you know, there's there's people riding horses, there's people chasing each other, there's people um <laughs> like uh just killing each other, you know, there's there's a lot of commotion, a lot of action, a lot of pieces moving. And for for Nolan to kind of inject yes. a bunch of exposition about yes. this is what they need to do in order for the the vapor to be effective, it needs to go underneath the Wayne Towers because that's where the main powers are or the central main or whatever they call it. It's a lot to sort of dive in. And I think this comes back to what I was saying before, how um, when Nolan always feels a need to justify and explain everything, a lot of this is kind of unnecessary and it just makes the final act so clunky that I'm like, okay, there's, I would have liked the final act to be more sort of action heavy and, you know, sort of down to a hand combat, really the, like the same way that they, he had that hand combat sequence in the beginning with the League of Shadows, right? That would have been so cool to focus more on and less yes. like explaining yep. that you need to take the vapor or the machine, <laughs> the microwave machine, <laughs> into the uh, underneath the tet rain tower and all that kind of stuff. I just thought it was pretty clunky. But look, I thought I, I thought he was trying to sort of like subject mm-hmm. um, the people of Gotham to revisit their own hell. Okay, and there's there's no bigger fear in um, uh, a, a religiously based society than um, with, with the prospect mm. of going to hell or even purgatory if you're a good Catholic. Um, you don't want to go there in everlasting hell, mm. but that's what these people were actually seeing with the hallucinogen. Um, it was mm. absolute terror in their final moments. Um, so, but that was, I would have, if that was where he was going, I would have liked that to have been explained because the microwave emitter was then, then fed through and led by um, mm. that, yep. uh, the, the, the saviour, Ra's al Ghul, through a cathedral 
like uh, industrial um, staunchens um, traveling mm -hmm. to the Wayne um, Monastery. There was, there was kind of like a religious aspect to all of this. And, and you know, as, as that centered man that he was, um, Liam Neeson just closing his eyes at the end before his yep. death. It was almost like yeah. epiphany and Which is very fitting for someone who's very um, self-righteous. So there was kind for, of like... Um, some kind of... Yeah. You know, <laughs> purging of society slash uh, uh, this yeah. is like the right way to take society right now. So, yeah, it's, it's very fitting for someone who's a very self-righteous um, person. So, you know, we also, we'll, we'll bring sort of Act 2 to a little bit of a close here. Uh, and the sort of... But I've never seen, I've never seen like that, that convoluted mm. sort of like process of like a destruction or um, damage mm. uh, in anything but like James Bond. Like let's make a highly <laughs> contrived device that James has to escape from. And yeah, it, kind of yeah. it, always, got to, it always has to come down to like some kind of showdown of uh, a big sort of explosion, whether it's contrived or, um, yeah. or you know, not contrived, you know. But um, so we get into this area of depression, mm -hmm. which is this is like depressing the character Bruce Wayne and Batman was mostly Bruce Wayne. Later at a party held at his mansion, Bruce, much to his surprise and shock, is confronted by Ducard and a group of ninja and a group of ninjas from the League of Shadows, who then reveals himself to be the real Raz Al Ghul, the former who died being a decoy. Raz, yes. who had been com conspiring with Scarecrow the entire time, plans to destroy Gotham by distributing the toxin, which was extracted from the mountainside blue flowers, undetected via Gotham's water supply, and then vaporize it with a microwave emitter stolen from Wayne Enterprises. Bruce, tricking his guests into leaving, fights briefly with Raz while the League of Shadows set fire to the Wayne Manor. Bruce escapes the Inferno with Alfred's help, just as the manor is destroyed. So this is also like the foreshadowing that happens at the beginning of the film where Bruce Wayne sets the League of Shadows headquarters on fire. He, he's kind of paid that back <laughs> by Ra's al Ghul also setting this place on fire. And he and like, Ra's al Ghul actually intentionally does this, whereas I, I think for Bruce Wayne, it looked more of like an accident, unintended, like set the place on fire. Or maybe was it? No, no, maybe it was intended. I think he knew about the gunpowder stuff um, up in the corner. Anyway, so yeah, there's, you know, there was that kind of foreshadowing that happens for this whole yeah. sequence where Mate Wayne Manor um, gets set on fire. And this is what I like about the arc of Bruce Wayne is that you depress the character to a point that you strip him off a building that is so um, it's such a big piece of legacy. I think um, Alfred says that this is like this like sixth generation. It's you know this house, this mansion has been. Uh, throughout six generations of the Wayne family. So, um, and, you know, there is a scene at the end where Bruce Wayne is, you know, he's he's pretty down and out and depressed that, you know, he doesn't have his mansion anymore, or the Wayne mansion. But then Alfred reminds him that uh, Wayne, uh, Wayne Manor is, is more than bricks and walls or something like that. You know, there's the legacy of the Wayne family is much more than that. Yes. Were you going to say something? Sorry. No, there, there is. You know, he went down that mine shaft and came back up with an arrowhead, and we're, we're going back like yeah. you know, 
millennium here like it's um and that that was never actually like entertained um later mm. that arrowhead sort of like what what significance that was like what's underneath um uh wayne manor like the the history it's it's almost like it's it's lifetimes and it's um you it know kind of, it like kind of opens up um prehistoric yeah it sort kind of, of thing. opens you know, up amazing. more opportunities for very more primal for the bruce wayne um story or the wayne story actually you know in the new batman that's coming out on may 1st uh, there's rumors but because they haven't actually exposed what the real story is about they've they've told us that this is kind of what's happening with the batman story but they haven't Mm -hmm. actually told us the details because that's all spoiler territory um i'm pretty sure the director sort of alluded to this idea that the story is going to be about the wayne generation and it's going to be about the Wayne family members that existed before Thomas. Um, yeah, yeah. Apparently there's there's kind of... Ah, cool. There's a lot of betrayal, deceit that happens within the Wayne family that also gets involved with um, Martha's side of the family too. So, yeah, I, I think there's, there's going to be a wow. sort of... It sounds like there's going to be a very similar sort of capulet um montague type thing going on with this new batman story we have the two houses you have the wayne house and you have whatever the last name of martha wayne is i can't remember her real last name oh i don't think there's like a proper <laughs> last yeah. name but they explore those territories of the two families the wayne family and the martha family that'll be interesting. that's a great angle and i, and I think this sort of i like that uh, plays i like into that yeah Robert patterson's character and how he his reasons for becoming batman and his kind of pursuit and his purpose whatever anyway that's uh i can't wait for that batman movie it's gonna be amazing like i don't know if you saw the latest trailer for it but oh that trailer looks amazing i did you know it was something i picked out apart from like me calling him like a (laughs) vampire and whatever but that's something for you to look at later on his uh, breastplate, mm. where we were used to seeing a bat, mm. they, well, the bat that didn't look like bats, in this one a, well. a bat to me. Mm. Yeah, it, it it's totally different. Check it out. Check it out, River, and tell me what it's you see. Those, like, okay, this is almost like um, the therapy you know, sessions where a Shawshank, you know, that, that sort of uh, what's what that? Um, you see yeah, yeah, like what what do you see in this sort of thing in this image, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah tell me. Have a look there. and tell me what you see. Okay. So Do let's get into yeah. Act three. Yeah. Um I think um um we'll <laughs> we'll okay. speed up the act three a little bit. Um <laughs> just to be a bit more time sensitive here. So this is the es- escalation sure. for Act Three. Batman yep. wants to trail Ray Raz's uh sorry. Let me start again. Batman wants to trail Raz and arrives at the Narrows section of Gotham to aid the police who are engaged in battle with psychotic criminals set free from Arkham Asylum by the League. After saving Rachel and admitting, oh, sorry, intimidating his identity to her, sorry, <laughs> Inti- yeah, intimidating her identity to her, he leaves yep. Gordon in control of the Batmobile to stop the elevated train that is being used to transport the vaporizer to the city's central water hub, which is underneath Wayne Tower. Batman battles Raz, Raz and then escapes just as Gordon topples the elevated 
line using the Batmobile's missiles leaving Raz to crash with the train to the ground. So this is, you know, come back to what I was saying before, how this whole part is very, very clunky. Um, there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot, like expositional dialogue, a lot of it. And, and this is also them or Nolan trying to explain how yeah. what Gordon now needs to do in this uh, sort of crusade to take down someone like Ra's al Ghul. You know, now his objective is about taking the Batmobile that he surprisingly knows how to drive now. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and he has to take down the train line. And, you know, like this is the, the big thing that I sort of criticize about this moment is that we do get also an escalation for Jim Gordon and, and being a part of this pursuit to be a vigilante or be involved in vigilantism activities, right? Or vigilante activity, I should say. It's like Jim Gordon is also doing something highly illegal here. And there, there isn't really um, any kind of restitution that Jim Gordon does in this film or even later on in the other films uh, in order for him to have some kind of righteous behavior, not self-righteous behavior, but some righteous behavior, doing right for his job as a commissioner and doing right for, I guess, yeah. the sake of his humanity, is that he's willing to perform these illegal activities alongside Batman. And this is where I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know if I would give that to you as a character because I think as a character, you need to stand for justice, even if it's behind closed doors and only the cameras can see you. I think you need to show us that you are the rightful kind of humanitarian that Gotham needs. Because remember, in The Dark Knight, Batman is willing to make a sacrifice so that the right people are seen as the right people, even though they aren't really the right people, <laughs> you know, a.k.a. Harvey Dent turns into Two-Face. Um, but he's willing to take Yay. the fall, and I'm surprised that Jim Gordon doesn't quite go down that road in Batman Begins. He's like, okay, you, look, you're going to do all this illegal stuff. You want me to take down a train line? Sure, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Look, the, but later, you know, we visit um, his character uh, even deeper. I mean, he, he's prepared to subject his family in the yeah. next movie knowing that, you know, he died. Like, like that trauma... And then kind of like walks away from that. That's like, mm -hmm. so, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of depth here, a bit of disconnection this guy is able to do in order. And we're looking at things from a traditional perspective and what traditional policing probably no. would, but this is just traditional yeah. criminals. No, like traditional city, definitely not. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's yeah. pretty much yeah. everything all at once and right um, away. <clears throat> this is what you're trying. So following the battle, Batman becomes a public hero. Bruce gains control over Wayne Enterprises and installs... Fox as CEO, firing Earl. Which we haven't actually spoken much about Rucker Hauer. Rucker Hauer. He doesn't play a big role in this film, mm -hmm. but I think he plays a role R that's Rucka important Hauer, yeah. for Bruce to becoming this or taking power over his company again. Um, again, taking over power. Um, even though the public does become. Sorry, I'm mumbling my words here. <laughs> Even though the company does become public, he buys the majority of the shares uh, to take full power of his company that has been generational in his family. However, he is unable to hold on to Rachel, who cannot reconcile her love for Bruce Wayne and his with his dual life as Batman. Gordon, newly promoted to lieutenant, 
Oh, so yeah, he does get promoted to lieutenant mm. by the end of the film. So he's sergeant and then he gets lieutenant. Okay, I totally forgot about that. Okay. Unveils a bat signal for Batman and mentions a new criminal that, like Batman, has a taste for the taste for the theatrical. Leaving a Joker playing card at his crime theatrical, scenes. Yes. Batman promises to investigate. And Gordon mentions that he forgot to thank Batman for his efforts. Batman replies by saying that you'll never have to as he takes off into the night. So the final quotes of this film is, I'll never have to have a chance to thank you, or I've never had the chance to thank you. And then he responds by saying, you'll never have to. I think that's a great way to finish off this film. And it's... Yeah, look, I thought... I thought oh, the other yeah, quote, that was also uh, in the didn't, didn't get the memo. Well. Didn't get the memo. <laughs> that was from Lucius Fox. Yeah, that that was. Yeah, Ruka, yeah. yeah, We didn't speak much about his character, Ruka, yeah. but um, there's probably totally. not a lot to say about his character. But he he does play yeah a disposable character. Um, if he wasn't in this film, I don't think it would have mattered. Um, I think whatever happens with Wayne Enterprises as a business. Um, can still operate in the background. I don't think we need to get yeah. a lot of also exposition about the, the business, which it's 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 that constant Nolan thing. And um, the thing that I always come back to criticizing Christopher Nolan films um, is he always has a need to just explain everything. <laughs> and this movie is jam-packed with lots <laughs> of stories and sub-stories and sub-stories to those sub-stories. And you could have done this film without explaining things like Bruce and, oh, sorry, Wayne Enterprises and the um, microwave, <laughs> the microwave sub-story, the sub-stories of like, um, uh, yeah, there's just a ton of them that you could have done without. No. Yeah, no. there's no need for a prequel they here, it all is there? Like, there's nowhere to go. There's no room to tell more stories. There's nowhere to go. It, this could yeah. this film could have been a lot more streamlined and a lot more tighter if they'd done without a lot of the explanations, especially all the gadgets. You know, the gadgets, it's cool to take us into this underground place where a bunch of scientific uh, research has been happening for uh, a lot of these gadgets to exist because they wanted to fund the army, but the but the government didn't want to pay tremendous amounts of dollars, which is funny because that's kind of, it's, it's almost somewhat true, I suppose, is that the government doesn't want to spend a lot of money on these utilities, but they're still willing to spend like billions of dollars on warfare. <laughs> um, in real life, you know, we're talking about the US here. But um, yeah, I guess, you know, Wayne Enterprises, if they were a real entity, Mm. The, I think their gadgets would be pretty damn expensive, you know, with the type of tech that they have behind it. Yeah, they made reference to that in regard to the Kevlar um, bodysuit that Batman later adopted. Um, they didn't think the amount of money that was spent pretty, on each one yeah, was worth was, a soldier's uh, life. Like, was, that's, that's a huge yeah. statement to make. And I know Nolan likes to make big statements with his with the dialogue that he has you know the storytelling he has he likes to make big statements and that was a huge one i was like wow mm-hmm. um but it's, i yeah. think it's more a reflection of just gotham city just not caring about anybody <laughs> you know nobody cares about anybody in gotham city and everybody's willing to yep. backstab yep. and 
you know, lie to each other and, you know, allow for criminal activity to take over to the point that real heroes of the city become corrupt themselves. And that's a huge theme that takes on a life of itself in The Dark Knight where you get um, very, very powerful and inspirational figures like Harvey Dent who end up becoming corrupt by the end of the film. And that's that's massive. So, yeah, I, I, by the time we get to mm. the end of this movie, to me, this movie is more Bruce Wayne Begins, less Batman Begins. It's more Bruce Wayne Begins in my in my eyes. What do you? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. Look, if you if this was the first time that you were seeing a Batman story, I, I you know, I. I think you you might have got a little bit bored up until the end where where the action sort of like started and there was a quickening in the pace and it was a lot more visual um, in regard to like fight scenes, the action scenes, all of that. Um, And that's kind of what happens in a James Bond movie. It sort of like starts out big punch, then it goes into Mm. the dialogue and a couple of backstories, it lays the plot. And then everything starts up again, and uh, and it relies heavily on the gadgets. And I know I mentioned that to you before, mm. but this Batman was kind yeah. of a bit of a James Bond in in that respect. Yeah, 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 it's true. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of the recap. <laughs> that is the end of our recap. Brilliant. Let's sum up your <laughs> thoughts on this movie. Um, what your 10 out of not 10 out of 10 what your out of 10 rating is for this and would you recommend it do, do you want me to to rate it as a, as a batman or as a movie rate it as however you'd like if you're, all right uh, or just give us like one rating so you don't confuse okay you look me. i'm i'm <laughs> gonna throw it into a seven okay because it's only because the next movie was just brilliant like uh, uh, in okay. so many ways. Are you saying that your rating is is in is influenced by how good the sequel? No, in, no, not because of the sequel. It's because it was the Batman that I didn't, I expected more from. Yeah. Okay. Because and as I said before, what I got was James Bond, and I got Christian Bale, who I just don't think was kind of like a, a good choice for a Batman. And I, mm, people will argue mm. about this, but I just don't. He's just still Christian Bale. Do you think he was good as Bruce Wayne? No, and that, that's probably my, my my point. I would have liked to have seen more of a statesman in Bruce Wayne, and mm. not the the playboy. I mean, the, the playboy aspect that we saw was someone telling off all his guests. Bruce Wayne wouldn't do that. <laughs> like, to, there, there were better mm. ways to get people out of the room than that. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah, or ending up in a splash pool like a fountain with a, a couple of the chicks that he's sort of like met to kind of, <laughs> that, I don't know, like, yeah, Christopher Nolan going down that path was like, oh, okay, I, I, I just felt a bit uncomfortable with that. So for, for as um, like a, someone with who would have had like a brilliant education and um, uh, who was raised very, very differently, had the most, the most amazing support network, these were the easiest ways that he could sort of like enable like things to happen the way that he want them. You know, he cer- he certainly mm. you you don't want to go to a to a a Christian Bale party cocktail party because all sorts of shit happens when when they do that. 
but you know villains come in <laughs> and it's yeah you just don't want that invitation so yeah, yeah i cut it let's stick with the seven okay it was good not not great yeah. okay. okay well do you have some of the favorite characters in the film yeah, come in, Falconia. It's clearly not yeah, Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Look, and Rutger Hauer, I, I like him as an actor, my man, Blade Runner. If you go and see that when you can do, because he was, and he wrote a couple of the lines in that, and I would have liked to have seen him do something in Batman more. They, they underutilized him as a clever person, not as an actor, a clever person. Um, yeah, de definitely. Yeah, and Michael Caine, being Michael Caine. Yeah, Michael Caine's pretty good. Yes. Um, so for me, I love this movie. I think this movie is one of the best origin okay. stories I've ever seen for a character. Um, I see, as opposed to seeing a, a duality for the character of Batman and Bruce Wayne, I actually see three types of characters here. And, and this is what I think Nolan does so well with the Bruce Wayne character, is that there's two types of Bruce Waynes that he has to play. One Bruce Wayne is the mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne that is deep down inside, and this is how he, this is what he explains to Rachel Dawes. Um, well, he doesn't actually explicitly explain to her. She kind of pick, figures this out when he exposes himself when he's on the rooftop, or not the rooftop. He's on the balcony, and he looks back, and then Rachel Dawes says, "I don't know, even know who you are," and then he repeats the same line that she repeated to him, or that she said to him in the beginning of the film, which is also another piece of short foreshadowing. You know, she says. It's not, it's not about um, who you are that defines you. It's, it's what you do that defines you or something along those lines, right? She basically mm -hmm. says it's what you do that defines you. And then he repeats that line to expose that it's Bruce Wayne behind the cape. So to me, there's two Bruce Waynes happening. There's, there's the Bruce Wayne that has to have a facade so that he takes the distraction away from what he's actually doing as Bruce Wayne, which is him being a vigilante. So he has to, he has to sure. take on this role of being the CEO of his own business. He has to take on this role of being. I don't think he intentionally wants to be a douchebag, but he actually turns into that because of that scene that he has with Ra's al Ghul. He has to find a way to like get everybody mm -hmm. out. Of course, he probably could have just been like, "All right, everybody, just get out," because I need to deal with this guy. But he had to create also a facade because who knows what Ra's al Ghul would have done if he said by the way, you need to get out because I need to deal with this guy because he's a criminal or whatever kind of explanation he gives there. Um, I actually think it's a pretty cool scene that he becomes this kind of dick billionaire douchebag. He's like, you know, everybody that's here, you know, drinking up all my expensive booze. <laughs> I think it's a cool piece of scene. And it, it's, a, it's the kind of Bruce Wayne that I would agree with you that is, is probably not the kind of Bruce Wayne that you want to to see i think there needs to be a bit more of a polished bruce wayne here but this comes back to what i was saying yeah. about how there's two types of bruce waynes that happen in this film and throughout the entire dark knight trilogy is that he has to be somebody else that is a distraction from what bruce wayne is actually up to fighting criminals beating them to a pulp at night time you know so yep. i i love the origin story in that respect and that we there's emotional gravity behind there's there's a weight to the bruce wayne character that we get from when he's eight years old all the way up to when he's just out of college princeton there's there's a uh, a development that i've never seen in a superhero character in this sense because because we're we're, we're learning about the character in such a a large time 
mind, right? You know, going from a child mm-hmm. all the way up to um, him being an adult. So I like that there's just a lot of emphasis on that midpoint of him growing up, which that midpoint is when he's a university college student. You know, he doesn't know the direction that he wants to take in his life. He doesn't know what to do with like the billions of dollars that he has in his bank. He doesn't know what to do with the legacy that Thomas, his father has put, put um, behind. Um, he has altruistic sensibilities to him, but he just doesn't know how to deal with them because he's so clouded by mm-hmm. the trauma of losing his father. That who was his father was his number one figure in his life. You know, he was side by side with him every single time. And Nolan does this great thing of of jumping to that memory that he has, where he his father as a doctor he puts the what do you call those things the <laughs> uh, the heartbeat thing. What what is that? What's that tool called? Uh, I don't know what that tool is called. Uh, like to listen to a heart ECG, like a, yeah, yeah okay. to listen to um, his heartbeat. Yeah, um, this is the father son uh, moment where he engages his son into what his career is as a doctor, and so he builds these these moralistic, uh, altruistic sensibilities because there's a nurturing process that happens. And the moment he loses his father, he doesn't know what to do with that moral compass. And instead, mm. he has to be confronted with some very, very dark situations and dark realities of of Gotham City. And when he's when he's confronted with this, he has to take a direction in his life where he's away from Gotham City. He's away from his most familiar environment. He's he's stripped of all of his privileges of having all this money and, and like the mansion. And he doesn't tell anybody. Not even he doesn't even tell. Alfred, where he's going, he's just been missing. And he, in fact, he actually gets declared dead because nobody knew where he was. <laughs> um, and there's sort of yes. questionable things of like, how did he manage to get a plane? How did he manage to like get on that plane? And how did he manage to like, <laughs> you know, contact Alfred? Whatever, I don't know. Like, uh-huh. you, you know, there is kind of a nitpicking motion there. But, uh, you know, back to my point, this is the Bruce Wayne that I. I fell in love with the character because I was so connected to him emotionally because of the journey that he's taking and the, and the choices that he has to make for himself as a character. So to me, like when I watched this again a few days ago, like right at the beginning of the film where we get eight-year-old Bruce Wayne and then we get like I don't know, a 22-year-old Bruce Wayne after Princeton University, like I found myself in – like I, w- I wasn't in full tears, but I was teary-eyed for this because – the score that Hans Zimmer, we haven't actually even spoken about the musical score here by Hans Zimmer. I think we can talk a lot more about Hans Zimmer's score, especially in The Dark Knight. Um, the score that is used to sort of uh, wrap the story is unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable. And there's the emotional scenes that are portrayed in this film is done with the perfect type of pitch for a musical score that Hans Zimmer does. I agree with you. Like this is like Jim John Barry, Jerry Goldsmith sort of like mm. uh, scores, just brilliant. This is like old school eighties. Like, yeah, very well done. Yeah. I agree with you one hundred percent. Music, musical score, and Nolan films are always a, a character. It's always so evident in any of his films, especially with the you know the big horns that happen in the background, like the you know, mm. uh, that's that's really exaggerated in in like say Dunkirk or. Um, Inception, especially, it's very exaggerated in that. But yeah, so to me, the story 
is amazing. It's, it's one of the best origin stories for a character in a single film. Not a, it doesn't count across yes. like multitude of films. You know, like um, yes, I don't compare it to like uh, the Tony Stark or the Steve Rogers uh, origin story because those origin stories take place literally across like thirteen years. So, so as a single film, <laughs> it's one of the best, if not the best, origin story that I've ever seen for a character. Um, and I love all the other characters in this. I think Morgan Freeman is great. I think Michael Caine is excellent. You, he can't do any wrong, like you were saying, and I agree with that. He can't do any wrong. You know, you give him the shittest lines, same as Morgan Freeman. If you give him the shittest lines, they'll still be able to make like um, something amazing out of it. Um, I think, I think Commissioner, yes. well, not Commissioner Gordon, but um, Gary Oldman playing Lieutenant Gordon. I think he's a good piece of the puzzle, but probably. The, the weakest arc for him as a character in the entire franchise. Um, this movie, he's he's doing okay. Yeah, he he doesn't do anything amazing, or he he has purpose behind his actions, which is good. But he doesn't have a lot of presence. Mm-hmm. And if uh, if they cut out maybe half of the scenes that he's in, it probably wouldn't have mattered too much. But he definitely does have a lot more purpose in the Dark Knight, especially. Um, yes. Yeah, and the cinematography is amazing. I mean, Wally Fuster, that guy is just a genius with his... He's got an eye for it, and he knows exactly how Nolan likes to shoot his films and the kind of palette, the color palette that he likes to have in his movies. Very muted colors, yes. not a lot of saturation, you know, a lot of sepia tones. And, um, and in this movie especially, there's a lot of sepia tones, whereas in The Dark Knight, there's a lot more blue tones going on with a splash of green here and there um so for me i give this film a nine out of ten okay and let's not forget the editing was amazing as well so i would have liked to have seen what was on the uh the editing room floor that would have been pretty interesting well you know interesting enough though interestingly enough christopher nolan doesn't leave a lot of the editing floor yeah yeah he likes to put everything in this film which Kind of makes sense, you know, especially for a film like Batman Begins. There's so much in this movie, so much yeah. to the point that you don't really need to have. Uh, in fact, like a lot of the stuff should have been on the editing floor <laughs> instead of in the actual <laughs> final cut. Um, <laughs> he doesn't like to leave a lot on the floor. It's very similar to the Russo brothers. They don't like to leave a lot in a director's cut because everybody's always kind of wanting a director's cut version of good films. But, I, but you could probably say yeah. that the reason why they're good film is because they probably don't have a lot that they leave on the editing floor. Okay, that's 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 amazing focus. Yeah. Imagine storyboarding all of that and just sticking to it. That would have been oh, great. Brilliant to sort of like to be a part of that team, yeah. to watch that. And you, you've had the, the privilege mm. of doing that, like being in movie production and being on set and everything so yeah yeah i'm, I'm a yeah. good comparison to christopher nolan for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we all yeah. say that like, uh, maybe not sure um but yeah let's it's not all we say <laughs> we should bring this long cast one in and it's okay. been a great cast actually you know it's really good having you on the show thank you so much i, I should have thought about you being on the show thanks earlier. yeah yeah that was fun. That was fun. That's great. I never get to speak out loud 
you know, about these things, and I probably won't ever get a chance again after this. But oh, um, no, maybe I'm definitely going to bring you back on another cast. Um, we've got so many movies coming out very, very soon. Cool. Um, and like I said at the beginning of the cast, this is the third episode of the Legacy series, which starting off with the Christopher Nolan films. On the next episode, we'll be reviewing and recapping The Prestige. Um, so that's going to oh, be awesome. pretty okay. damn fun. And um, we've got Nathan coming back for that cast as well. Hey, if you want to join in that cast as well, um, Rick, that's totally up to you. But I'll, I'll hit you up and see how your schedule is. Okay. Um, and of course, if you haven't checked out all the other episodes of the Legacy series, make sure you check them out. Episodes 19 and 20, mm-hmm. Memento and Insomnia. Prestige will be it's undisclosed at the moment what number prestige will be um but that's pretty exciting and you know if you haven't been on the podcast before if you haven't listened to this podcast before make sure you hit the notifications button it's usually at the top right hand corner on pretty much all the listening platforms where can everybody find you rick are you quite active on social media or is that something undisclosed no, again, born in the wrong decade. You know, I, I'm kind of, I, I don't post anything. I keep low a very profile. Okay. discreet okay. life. Okay. So, yeah, totally nice. low profile. But I'm still single and available <laughs> for dates. So, you know. I'll put that in the show notes. No worries. <laughs> this is, as social media is what I, I get. Love that. So, here I it love is. I love that. And be sure to follow Legit Cool Podcasts on Instagram. That is at Legit Cool Podcasts. My personal Instagram is at River underscore V I L I. That's River Villy. And um, we will see you guys in the next episode.